You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All, are, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also For those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Beloved, this is God's holy word to us. You may be seated. Have you ever been in a meeting that you really shouldn't have been in? You know that feeling that you get when you feel like you have nothing qualified to say. Like there's nothing meaningful that you can add to a conversation. Meanwhile, you're surrounded by a bunch of really qualified people. I have that feeling all the time. Um, After college, one of my first jobs was a procurement analyst. And so my job was to purchase. And it was with this aerospace company. And essentially, my job was to receive requests from engineers and to get them what they needed. Uh, But about six to eight months of the first stint of my job, I had no idea what I was doing. And I would be sitting in on meetings with engineers and with program managers, project managers, and I was trying to understand what they were saying because what they were saying is really important to my job, Uh, but most of the time I was sitting there with my supervisor alongside me, helping me along the way. It's It's the feeling you get when you're a fly on the wall and the only natural thing that you want to do is slowly fade back and say, I don't belong here. And in many ways, that's kind of what this text, this prayer, can feel like. Today marks the start of our Easter sermon series, and so now we are preparing to celebrate, as we always do, but especially on Resurrection Sunday, to celebrate the salvation that God has accomplished in Christ. And here in John 17... Jesus, the Son from the Father, God in the flesh, is having a conversation, is praying and pleading with his Father in heaven, and we get to peer in and listen. And this prayer is so wonderful and marvelous, and it's filled with heavenly language. And honestly, it's a bit difficult to understand. And so, church, before we slip into the background and say we don't belong here, we have to hear what Jesus is praying about. We won't be able to explore every nook and cranny here in this prayer, but as, as we survey this prayer, there is one main thrust, one main argument, one main proposition that John would have us understand as he's penning Jesus' prayer right before the crucifixion. And it's this. That you would know, that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that God the Father loves his very own people who have received his very own son. This is the thrust of this prayer. That you would know without a shadow of a doubt that God the Father loves his very own people who have received his very own Son. And so the structure of this prayer is as follows. Point one, the hour has come. Verses one through five. Point two, Jesus prays for his disciples. Verses six through 19. 
And the third point, the last point, is that Jesus prays for us. It's this natural breakup in the text that will also organize our time this morning. So without further ado, the hour has come. Chapter 17, verse 1. Follow along with me, church. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. This is a really pivotal moment in John's gospel account. And we have to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says the hour has come? Is this a literal hour? What does he mean? But no, this is not a literal hour. This is another way for Jesus to say that my time has come. The crucifixion, the cross is right around the corner. And I know that we're flying right out of Genesis into the end of John. But if you're familiar with the book of John, you'll notice that this phrase, the hour has come, is not new to the gospel of John. Essentially, up to this point, Jesus has been saying, my hour has not yet come. Remember Jesus in Cana? When he performs his first miracle, he turns the water into wine and he tells his mother, my hour, my time has not yet come. John 2, 4. John seven thirty, again. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John eight twenty again, his hour had not yet come. And it's this cadence throughout the whole book until you get to the 12th chapter when the tide begins to turn. And then here in John 17, 1, Jesus makes it really clear about what is about to happen. The hourglass has turned and that final grain of sand is about to fall into the bottom half, which means crucifixion and death on a Roman cross. However, the arrival of this hour doesn't only mean crucifixion and death, but also glory and life. In the very next chapter, Jesus will be betrayed. This prayer ends and then he's immediately betrayed. And so sets into motion his impending death. But do you see the glory here in these first five verses as Jesus opens his prayer? to the Father. His main petition, his first and main petition in the start of this prayer is that the Father would glorify him as he glorifies the Father. And this verse will be up on the screen, but in John 12, verse 23, Jesus, what he is doing here is he is connecting glory and life to death. And crucifixion. These things aren't mutually exclusive, but they go hand in hand. So in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so we ask, okay, what does this mean? What does it mean that the hour has come for Jesus to be glorified? Verse 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
And so in our text this morning, Jesus is praying and asking the Father for a harvest of plentiful fruit. And just like a seed is buried in the ground and dies before it gives fruit, so too Jesus must be buried in the ground to produce a harvest of fruit. And the next logical question is this. Well, what does the death of Christ produce? What is that harvest that he is talking about? This glory that he is referring to. Middle of verse 2. This is it. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The fruit is eternal life. And this presupposes our condition as sinners that we don't have eternal life in and of ourselves. But because of the consequences of sin, of our rebellion before God Almighty, death is our plight. Life and fruitfulness and eternal life is not our condition naturally, but it's thorns and thistles. And yet Jesus does not flinch. He doesn't flinch. He knows the purpose for which he came. He came to face sin and death head on. And he does so by his own death so that we would never have to as we receive him by faith. As he is raised from the dead. And so are we for those who are in Christ who trust in him. This one who is sent from the Father. Eternal life in the place of eternal death. And what is eternal life? What is eternal life? Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is so important, and this, this verse acts as a sort of key to understanding the whole prayer. So let me read it again. Verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The way to eternal life, the way to this kind of love that the Father has manifested is only through the Son, that God the Father has provided a way, a means for us to experience life with him, communion with him, fellowship with him. And it's through his son, his only son. There's no other way. John makes this argument really clear in this account. If you've seen me, you've seen the father and no one can come to the father unless they go to the son. And this is why this prayer is even called the high priestly prayer. You'll notice that in the heading right before the chapter. It's the high priestly prayer because Jesus himself in this prayer, he is functioning as a mediator, as a middleman, as a bridge between holy God and sinful man. He is going into the presence of his heavenly father in prayer, in intercession on behalf of us. 
And in this Easter season, we will hear a lot of familiar things like this. We were just talking about this in life group, how easy it is to just become so inoculated and used to this kind of terminology. And this is beautiful. I think this is so familiar with us. A prayer like this is because this prayer is so beautiful. And yet the danger is for us to not see how amazing this is, that we are not in awe and in wonder of how good God is and how gracious he is in providing to us his son. It's not every millennia that God the Father makes himself known by sending his only son so that you would have life instead of death. This is a really big deal. This is why we get really excited this time of year and every other day outside of Easter Sunday for that matter. At this point in the prayer, Jesus, he's not satisfied in praying a template prayer. He's not satisfied with staying general, but he gets really specific. And so he prays for his own disciples, which brings us to the second movement of this text. Jesus prays for his disciples, beginning in verse six. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Jesus is now referring to the people that have been given over to him by the Father, namely the twelve disciples minus Judas. And this is really endearing Because what we see here is that Jesus' last words before he is about to die are regarding his own. If you are about to, to pass away, if you're about to die, who would you be thinking about? Who would you go to in your mind's eye? Who would you be praying for? It'd be your own. It would be your wife, your husband, your children, your kin, those who are yours. And so this is really endearing because he moves right into praying for his people, these 11 disciples. And he's describing in verses 6 through 8, he's describing the reality that we just read about in verses 1 through 5 that his disciples have come to know the Father because they have come to know the Son, that his disciples, because they are trusting and banking on Christ, they have the Father and they have eternal life. This is a living picture of the plan of salvation that is laid out in these first five verses of the prayer. Listen again to verses 6 through 8 carefully as we have verses 1 through 5 echoing around in in the background of our minds. Listen, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, And have come to know in truth that I came from you. 
and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus has manifested his name, the Father's name, to his disciples, and they have received him. They have received the words of the Father because they have received the words of Christ. And the disciples come to know the Father and come to know what eternal life is because they have come to Christ, the mediator, the middleman, the bridge, the way and the means and the end. Therefore, these disciples of Jesus, Jesus aren't obscure, random followers of Christ, but they are very precious to Jesus. They are very precious to the Son, and they are very precious to the Father. And so, he therefore prays for their protection. It makes sense. He is about to leave. He's about to depart. He's going to leave, certainly, for three days as he is crucified and buried in the ground. But he'll rise again. But even after that, he's going back to his father to share the glory that he enjoyed before the, the, before the world's foundations. Verse 5. In the middle of verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And Christ continues to plead for protection for preservation, for guarding of his disciples, of his very own. And someone might argue, well, that's not very loving and kind for Jesus to leave his disciples. He's abandoning them. Why would he do that? But this is actually the most loving and kind thing that Christ could do because his departure to the Father's right hand to to rule and reign as the God-man who conquered death means that he conquered death. This is really good news. And he has is, he is promised that he wouldn't leave us. He even gave him himself, God, the Holy Spirit. And so this is really good news. This prayer for protection is grace on top of grace. And protection is needed because his disciples are in the world and the world hates them. He makes this argument several times in chapters 14 through 16. The world will hate them because they hate Jesus. Jesus' words to the world are like sandpaper to their ears, which is why he is about to be crucified at the hands of lawless men. Therefore, Jesus prays for protection. And let me just say a word on prayer. Jesus instructs his disciples in chapter 16 that whatever they ask for in the the name of the Son, they will receive from the Father. But here in this text, not only is this prayer offered in Jesus' name, this is offered by Jesus Christ himself. And if prayer is powerful... How much more powerful and pointed and certain is this prayer for the protection of his own people? And I know this, this section, we're about to get into the section where Jesus prays for future believers, for us. But there is certainly application for us here. If you are his, if he died on the cross 
to purchase you, to ransom your soul from hell, to rescue you, won't he certainly protect that which he began? We who are in Christ are new creations because he created us. He loves to keep his own to the very end. And so Jesus, we know, is gentle and lowly, but he is also ferocious and tenacious in his covenant-keeping love, his protecting, his guarding love toward those who are his. And it's, again, the main thrust of this prayer that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that God the Father loves his very own who have received his very own son. And it's not just the 11 disciples that he sets his affection upon. It's us. It's those who are to follow, which leads us to the third movement of this prayer. Jesus prays for us. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus now turns his gaze toward future believers, toward those who will come to faith, come to believe that the Son of God truly came from the Father. And we who are in Christ, trusting and clinging to him, are evidence of God keeping his promise to answer Christ's prayer. Because in verses 17 through 19, Jesus here is praying for mission. He's praying that these disciples, these 11 disciples of his, would be sent out. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To preach this gospel, to go into the far reaches of the world, And so us here now, loving Jesus, loving the Son sent from the Father, is evidence of God keeping his promise as Christ has prayed for this. Again, Jesus doesn't pray for his future family in generalities, but with specificity. He's really clear about what he's praying for. And there's a lot of different things that he's praying for in this final section. But the overarching theme of what he is praying for is for unity. Look with me at verse 20. Notice this purpose of unity that Jesus emphasizes. I do not ask for these only, for the disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus is praying for something so profound 
and yet so simple. He's praying for a kind of unity among those who will believe in him. He's praying that the body, his own body, would be unified together. And it's not just a unity together as people. You can find that at Angel Stadium or at the dog park, right? But he's praying for a unity that we would be unified, but that we would be unified in him. That they, verse 21, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That they may all be one and that they may be in us. This horizontal kind of dimension and this vertical dimension. Jesus here is praying for this. And it is divine genius of Jesus Christ to be praying for this 2,000 years ago because this is exactly what we so desperately need in our time right now. I don't have to convince you on the kind of division and discord and hatred that surrounds us. It's the air we breathe. It's in politics. It's in medicine, education, wars, which we just are so used to hearing about. I wish I were actually more surprised when I heard slander from brothers and sisters in Christ slandering other brothers and sisters in Christ. I wish I were more shocked and appalled. But this is just the air that we breathe. Even in the church, this is so. The very thing that Jesus prayed against, we so frequently see around us. And Jesus says that this kind of witness, this kind of unity, together as we are in Christ, as we are in and folded into the very life and love of God, this is a witness to a watching world. That they, the world, would come to know me through your unity, through your love for one another. And yet, even though Jesus says that the church is not of the world, a lot of the times we can sound and bite like the world sounds and bites. But church, we are not of the world. We are not of this world. Our allegiance is to Christ. Our allegiance is to this one, this one who has prayed for us. Our allegiance is not on little opinions that divide and devour, but upon the solid rock that we stand upon, Christ Jesus himself. Jesus as the mediator and the bridge between God and man, he smashes the enmity and hostility between God and man, and he smashes the enmity that we have with one another by means of his death and resurrection so that we would be a peculiar kind of people marked by unity and love for God and for one another and for a broken world which so desperately needs Christ. And Roots Community Church, I 
I say this and I preach this as one of your pastors who is so proud of the grace of God at work in you. I, I read Paul in Thessalonians and he, he's, he's saying, I thank God for your faith and your love toward all the saints. I feel like that right now. That your love for one another is a constant reminder of the love of God in Christ. And that this is a witness in our city, in our schools, in our workplaces. This is a wonderful witness of the things which are true. So I praise God for you all. And I I want for myself and for all of us here, for the weight of this passage, this prayer, to land on us with fresh conviction. So how does this happen? The question is, how does this happen? How do we get here? How do we get to to what Jesus is praying about here in John 17? And the way we get here, the way that we grow in unity together as one body in Christ, in God, is by growing in our understanding of the Father's love toward us. That's how we get there. It's the very love of God in Christ which binds us together and to Him, and it sets the tempo for our love for one another. Look with me at verse 26, the last verse of this prayer. I made known to them. Jesus says, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Did you catch that? That the love, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is, this is otherworldly. This is radical. This is almost, almost too much to comprehend. That Jesus is praying that we would understand that we are loved in the same manner that the Father loves the Son. Not less than, the same. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, is so helpful here. He beautifully remarks, regarding verse 26, this. The crucial point is that verse 26 does not simply make these followers the objects of God's love, but promises that they will be so transformed as God is continually made known to them, that God's own love for his son will become their love. The love with which they learn to love is nothing less than the love amongst the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is praying for this kind of love, that you, brother and sister, would know and grow in this kind of love. Just picture, picture yourself in the waters of of baptism as Jesus is being baptized before his earthly ministry and he comes out of the water and, and he's standing here in all of his perfection and you are standing right next to him in all of your imperfection 
And God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased because of your trust in this one. That is the reality for those who are in Christ. Church, we know that God loves his people. We know that God loves his people ethereally out there, that he loves this person and this person. But do you know, are you utterly convinced of God's love for you in Christ, that the father loves you, not so-and-so, or this person over here, but that God loves you in the same way that he loves his beloved son. And this is really hard to believe. It's actually impossible to believe. Which is why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that you would know the unknowable love of God. It's impossible. This is really hard. And I think, at least in my own experience, what makes it really difficult is I'm constantly looking at myself to measure myself of how lovely I am. That maybe, maybe I can do something to be a little more lovely in the Father's eyes. And yet, it reminds me of Paul as he's writing to the Galatian church. He says, What are you doing, guys? You began so well. You began in the spirit. Are you now trying to be perfected in the flesh? You receive the love of God in Christ as your standing and status, that you are loved just as he loves the son. Are you going to try and graduate away from that and earn love and favor from God through other means? And so, the, where do we look? If we can't look down, certainly we have to look up. We have to look back. We look at the realities that we read about in verses 1 through 5. That you who are in Christ are not lovely because you are lovely in and of yourself, but because Jesus Christ is lovely. That he is God's own very son. He is the one who is pleasing in the Father's eyes. He is the one who saved us and called us and died on the cross to pledge his own love toward us. That's how we get in. That's how we receive love. It's receiving love. It's receiving the son not rejecting him and not saying, no, I think I could be lovely apart from you. No. It's receiving him and thereby receiving everything from God, even himself. As we close, again, going back to the illustration at the beginning, as you picture yourself in the room, with this conversation, this prayer that Jesus is having with the Father, picture yourself there. Do you still feel like you shouldn't belong? Do you still feel intimidated, like you have no business 
being there. If you are in Christ, receiving, trusting in Him, brother and sister, you belong in the room. You not only belong, but He has died for you and has prayed for you and is keeping you to the very end and has folded you into the very life and love of God and with one another. And if this is all new to you and you do feel intimidated, come to Jesus anyways. This is why he came. He didn't come for lovely people. He came for broken sinners. This is the very heart of Christ. And so may we be utterly convinced over and over and over again of God's very love for us because of his love for his own son.